This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Get in zone. AutoZone. Welcome to AutoZone. What are you working on today? I got to change the oil in my car. Right now, get five quarts of Pennzoil Platinum Full Synthetic with an STP Extended Life Oil Filter for only $36.99. What do I do with my old oil? We can recycle your used oil for free. And do you have oil for my old work truck? You can find the right high mileage oil to help it go farther right here at AutoZone. AutoZone. Restrictions apply. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with bare premium plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, Ooby-doo, I want to be like you, ooh, ooh. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, everybody. Yes, Joe. Joe. I have a question for you. Ask away. Let's say you were going to put your life in the hands of a particular technology. Let's say it's some kind of biomedical device that you need to save your life, or maybe it's some kind of vehicle that if it fails, you're going to have a lot of trouble. But this device doesn't exist yet. You need to create it. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Okay. No pressure, though. And you've got two choices. Would you rather have one really smart scientist and one really smart engineer with about six months to work on it and a six-figure budget? Or would you rather have millions of really, really bad scientists with four and a half billion years to work on it and pretty much infinite resources? So what you're telling me is that we're not exactly at emergency status. (laughs) (laughs) 
since, exactly. since in theory we have four and a half billion. Yeah. I'm going with the four and a half billion years approach because uh, I don't think I'd live that long even without whatever life-threatening <laughs> situation happens to be pointing well, in my Well, let's just say what if. Oh, all right, five, five, You've five. uploaded your consciousness I, to I, the I, Matrix, and, and then four <laughs> and a half billion years later, you're, you're they're going to put the hard drive that your brain is stored on on this vehicle that's going to fly through the sky. <laughs> Would you rather have this vehicle designed by... What if... All right, so... The, the limited but talented humans... Or the completely brainless but amazingly well supplied other. I think I think I see where you're going with this. And while uh, many of us, I think, uh, credit amazing geniuses for the uh, innovations that make our lives convenient and safe and healthy, uh, we can't ignore the fact that many of those innovations come to us courtesy of. The fact that nature has had billions of years to try out different designs, not consciously, I want to make that clear, but all these different approaches have come around in life, and the ones that have worked the best have st- stuck around, so nature's gotten great at perfecting certain types of approaches, so... I go with I go with the four and a half billion years dumb approach. Yeah, you saw through my analogy, Lauren. Would you? <laughs> also, I have the notes here. It's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I. It's a really hard question to answer when I already know the topic that we're discussing today. I apologize. Uh, oh it's no, no, no. Too transparent to y'all. Okay. Well, my uh, analogy, of course, is that the millions of dumb scientists with nearly infinite time and resources is the process of biological evolution. Mm-hmm. Right. Not, Which is a decently good one. Yeah. Doesn't have very good foresight or any foresight. Right. Doesn't have very good top-down control or any top-down control necessarily. Right. But it does have a lot of time and a lot of resources to work things out. And right. it can produce some really amazingly useful things and, and some very specialized things. Yeah. Things that uh, if we wanted to try and create something technological that would give us an advantage in some way or make our lives better in some way or just achieve a certain type of task, often it behooves us to take a look at nature and see if there are any examples in the natural world where this already exists and then say, how can we do that same thing? That's actually something that scientists and engineers do all the time. Yeah. It's this field known as biomimetics or biomimicry. And Jonathan recently did a video about biomimetics where he talked about some really interesting topics in this field. To be fair, I was copying an ant that had previously done a video. (laughs) So I was was biomimicking. Really, all we ever do is copy ants. That's true. Uh, Not not the organism. We're talking about the actual DreamWorks motion picture. Ants, A N T Z. Oh, I, I was thinking about my ants. I mean, like like Linda and oh, Kathy like your and aunts. Sandy. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Right. Well, They're really cool. And they are living organisms. So if you were to invent technology based on them, that would be biomimetics. We get loopier every episode. I'm not sure what what's causing it, but no, this is actually a really awesome topic, just in general, and and we so awesome that we want to cover it in a pair of podcasts. So this one we're like looking at a very kind of general approach to biomimetics, but we've got another one that's much more focused on a particular organism. But uh, for this, we thought we'd talk about lots of different examples that you can find of cutting edge technology that is taking its inspiration from stuff that's existed in some cases 
for billions of years. Uh, including some of the ones that you went into in your video, because mm-hmm. we wanted to sort of break those out and really explain the weird nitty gritty bits of, of how it's working. Um, the, the first topic that we wanted to cover was how moths' eyes have inspired better solar panels. Okay, now I talked about it in the video, but this seems counterintuitive at first. Uh, so, Lauren, why don't you kind of walk us through what is it that's special about a moth's eyes? Oh, well, let's let's back it up. But before that, you know, we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about how solar panels are pretty inefficient, sure. right? Um, as they stand, the best ones in the field are really only using some 25% of the light hitting them. Um, part of the problem being that each of the many layers of photovoltaic material that, that make up solar panels reflects a little bit of light, meaning that that light that's reflecting can't be used to generate electricity, meaning that you're wasting potential. Right. It's like it's it's reflecting out of the solar panel, so you're not capturing it. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like if you wanted to heat up your body as much as possible, you wouldn't want to wear bright colors that reflected all of the light off. Of you. Or or leave large parts of your body uncovered. Yeah. That wouldn't be very effective either. Or coat yourself it. in mirrors. Wow. Well, you are yeah. ruining my plans for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so getting to the moth size... What What's so special about those? It turns out that they are really non-reflective, um, which is really useful to nocturnal animals, which moths are. You know, they, they do their thing at night. Um, and it means that they can see in really low lighting situations because lots of light gets through to the nerves in their eyes that, that you know, work with their brains to sense light. It also helps in uh, camouflage in the sense that they're reflecting right. less light so predators can't see them. But really, we're focusing not to make too big a pun, on the fact that it's redirecting light into the eye itself. Mm-hmm. And they have two structures in their eyes that help them out with this. Uh, first, they have a tapital mirror, which is a lens at the back of their eyes that, that bounces light back through the eyeball for a second chance at hitting all of those sensor nerves. Wow. Um, it's also why like like shark eyes and cat eyes seem to glow in the dark. Also alligator eyes. Yeah, yeah. Lo- lots of animals Creepy. have this thing. Yeah. Um, and they've also got a special structure called, and okay, this is for reals, the technical term, you guys. Hit me. A corneal nipple array. We can't say that on this podcast. <laughs> this is science. Okay, um, fair enough. <laughs> and it's it's this nanoscopic landscape of cone-shaped structures, each only some like 200 to 300 nanometers tall and wide. Wow. And remember, a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. These are tiny, tiny structures. Yeah, yeah. And and these wee little things allow light to just kind of slip by. The, the shape doesn't reflect light the way that a flat surface would. Researchers started taking note of this all the way back in the 1970s. Wow. All right. Okay. So we see these little structures. We see that they are allowing light to slip through and not reflect off. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's a practical application right away. But someone managed to find one, right? Yeah. uh, Researchers, and and you talked about them uh, a little bit in detail in the video, Mm -hmm. at the North Carolina State University recreated the nanostructure. And... And started putting it into photovoltaic materials. So the the exact amount of light that's regained by the structures uh, in photovoltaics is unconfirmed at the moment. But but it's really cool that scientists are working on it. Right. So this is a, a promising technology. We do not yet know if its efficacy 
is such that it's going to be a good return on investment. It may turn out that the expense of engineering this doesn't really justify whatever uh, whatever increase in efficiency we might see, or it may turn out that it ends up boosting efficiency enough where this becomes the the norm. The norm, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of those early problems that we've run into is that. Um, the nanostructures get really easily clogged with dirt. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're they're little pokey things, and so dirt can just kind of sidle up in there and get stuck. But right. but some researchers at the University of Cambridge are working on creating self cleaning materials that have this desired nanostructure, which involves like photocatalytic nanoparticles of titanium dioxide that break dirt down into just carbon dioxide and water. Of course. I mean, that's what I would have done. <laughs> well, the the cool thing here is, I mean, since they get clogged with dirt, that would obviously mean that you are uh, making the the solar panel more sort of well the, opaque. the yeah the level in front of the, the yeah. photovoltaics gets opaque and so no light is getting through so yeah obviously this is a very important part uh, yeah it's pretty cool I, we've talked about self cleaning materials a couple times too so uh, I'm glad that we were able to to incorporate that in this discussion clearly I wasn't able to go into that kind of detail in the video so it's really neat to be able to get a chance to express it here so one of those other topics that you talked about in the video was the centripetal spiral in nautilus shells and and how they can be useful in 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 fluid dynamics and okay so so the gig with this guys uh you know turbines which are just rotating devices that include a rod with blades attached to either move a fluid or to have a fluid move through the machine thus generating work um turbines have existed for a few thousand years in the form of water wheels and windmill mm -hmm. windmills 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 yes <laughs> um and they, and there have been a lot of modern advancements to these from the materials used to make them to very precise fluid dynamic driven physical tweaks um but they're still not perfect despite the best of our science because they they involve Necessary resistance due to drag, um, a lot of noise, and continual wear to their components. And this is important research because although the turbines that we have today work pretty well, we've got a lot of things that would benefit from moving more smoothly through fluid, like, you know, cars or airplanes. Yeah, atmosphere is a fluid. So yeah. having that sort of uh, uh, smooth movement through a fluid studying fluid dynamics. I mean, this is a complex field that concerns a lot of different sciences and, and also engineers. Yeah. And, and if you have a more efficiently moving car, then you have to then you don't have to use as much fuel. Right. To so, power. It. Yeah. There are multiple benefits that spill out by this kind of study. One, Jay Harmon, who's the CEO of an industrial fluid dynamics design company called Pax Scientific, has patented a few designs based not on the age-old turbine design, but rather on the golden spiral, a.k.a. a logarithmic curve with a growth factor of phi, or a Fibonacci spiral, or the shape of a nautilus shell. Huh. Yeah, as it turns out, um, you can look around in nature, and that, that shape pops up in more than just knowledge shells, right? I oh, mean, everywhere, yeah. basically. Um, it, it's this really efficient, like, sturdy, space-saving shape. Uh, lots of roses have petals arranged in this spiral. Sunflower seeds grow in the same pattern. Uh, pine cones and pineapples have their spines arranged in, like, double phi spirals, mm -hmm. both clockwise and counterclockwise. Um, the human e inner ear is, is a golden spiral. Whirlpools are this golden spiral. Yeah. So when you see the shape appear 
over and over again. You're probably in the movie Uzumaki and you should watch out. <laughs> or. So that's a really that's kind of a nonsensical Japanese horror film. I don't I don't necessarily recommend it. The the interesting thing I find about the shape about seeing it over and over again is that this is a, a suggestion that this particular shape has worked well for its numerous applications, depending upon what it is you're looking at. The fact that you're seeing it and not uh, a bunch of different types of spirals. If you see one type of spiral ha- happening repeatedly, that might be an indication that something's going on there that that merits further study, that perhaps there are ways of taking advantage of said shape. Uh, yeah, Harmon maintains that creating things that either move fluid or, or move through a fluid in this shape will make them just hella efficient. Uh, you know, really, <laughs> that's that that is the technical science yeah, term. That's that, true. That that it will reduce drag to to not very much drag at all. Um, he claims that it's the shape of like least resistance, conserving the most possible energy. And the idea here is that the shape enacts a centripetal force on the fluid. And I'm not a fluid dynamics expert, but I'm I'm gonna attempt to explain how, how this goes. So, right. <laughs> okay. So letting fluid flow through this spiral shape means that the fluid molecules along the edges of the surface will experience drag, uh, but creating what's known as a boundary layer of slow moving fluid at the edges of the shape, which lets the rest of the fluid flow through the center of the shape faster, thus creating a, a vortex that kind of pulls the fluid through the shape. Good Lord. The fact that you have fluid through and flow so many times in that explanation and you managed to get through it, it blows my mind. I, I was speaking like five times as slow as I usually do. I think. <laughs> flow, flow flings fluids down by the flow shore. Yeah. It's, but no, that's really cool. And, and, you know, it's again, this is one of those things that you would have to test repeatedly to see if the effects are in fact measurable. But sure. it, but it is one of those things that on a on a on a given level seems to make real sense. So this spiral is fascinating, but there are also other examples of biomimicry, including the amazing gecko. I talked about this in the video and I talked about how I love geckos. That is totally true. I love ge- I think they're the cutest things and uh I I've, I've been fortunate enough to visit Hawaii a few times. Hawaii often, if you are staying in a, a, a home in Hawaii, which is normally where I stay, I've got a, a friend who lives there. Mm. Um, a lot of those homes are kind of a gecko palaces. And so you'll wake up and you'll just see geckos on your wall and on your ceiling. And occasionally you need to shake out your clothes just to make sure that you're not going to have a gecko surprise when you put them on. Do they bite? No. Uh, they, oh, most, they, they can. I, they could. Bite. I mean, they, they could. They could really <laughs> nip. I mean, they're 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 not. Their jaws are pretty small. And they tend to. They they are very timid critters. Yeah, they run shy. away. They don't. They they are they not the kind around. that want to come up to you. Yeah. No. But as you talked about in the video, and as I think we've alluded to briefly on this podcast before, geckos have some amazing. Yes, they are able to crawl up vertical surfaces. They're able to crawl across ceilings. They're able to hang by a single toe from a pane of glass. Yeah. So if you wanted to recreate this in the lab, how would you go about doing that? Well, you could think maybe, oh, maybe I need to put some kind of really sticky material like glue on my hands. Or but maybe suction cups, like yeah. giant suction cups. That's got to be how they that do it, right? That really well yeah. in comic books yeah. but the thing from is, the 1960s. Yeah. These types of things aren't really very feasible, uh, especially in the long term. If you've got some kind of sticky residue like a glue, 
Um, that's not going to stick to some types of surfaces, well, yeah, right? There, there are multiple ever... problems. One, oh, it's sure. not going to stick to everything. Two, it's not necessarily going to be easy for you to remove your hand right. and then move it to the next space. Yeah. And three, it'll eventually wear off if you don't have some way of secreting said <laughs> sticky substance. So how do they do it? Well, they don't do it through a sticky substance, do they? they no. Do it, they do it through hair, Through y'all. nanotechnology. Yes, they do, oh. actually. Uh, so... Researchers studying geckos found out that they have nanoscale beta keratin elastic hairs on their feet and toes. And let me let me break that down for you, just in case you that that doesn't really mean a whole lot to you in that particular configuration of right. words. Um, they're they're very strong, very thin protein structures. Beta keratins are what make up like reptiles' scales and claws and shells, uh, and also birds' feathers, beaks and claws. They've got about the same toughness of chitin, which makes up uh, sea bug shells, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lobsters and crabs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they can be really stretchy and bendy, especially at the nanoscale, in which, as we have spoken about before, everything is super wicky. Yeah, yeah. Things on the nanoscale have, uh, they behave in different ways than stuff that we're used to on the macro scale. So when you get down to the nanoscale, you're actually getting small enough where quantum effects start to take place, too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, so, but wait a second. I can stick my head, which is covered in hair, if you can't see it right now, against a wall, and that does not help me stick to the wall. So how are these little hair-like fibers helping? Well, first of all, the human hair is, uh, you know, some hundred thousand nanometers thick so it's not nearly on the same scale oh right these wee little hairs are so wee that they interact on a molecular level with the stuff that that walls or glass or whatever are made of yeah um what's called the the vandervals force kicks in and and wham the critter can climb right up something i love oasis song about that you're my vandervals what it's just me well uh, all joking aside or at least most of it aside, uh, <laughs> Van der Waals force, this is something that can be either uh, uh, an attractive force or a repulsive force. It's not necessarily one or the, it, it's, it's not just attraction, but this is something we talk about on a molecular level with surfaces and their, uh, their tendency to either adhere or repulse. So uh, a few different research teams have been working on replicating this in materials. There's a a team particularly from the Zoological Institute at the University of Kiel that created a silicone tape that's patterned with tiny hairs. Uh, No glue, no residue, works underwater. It can be peeled off and restuck to things thousands of times without losing its gripping power. See, I want to have one of those toys that you used to have where you could throw it against the wall and very slowly crawl crawl down using Mm -hmm. this kind of approach. And you could just throw it against the or the wall or a window or anything, and it just splats and stays there. That'd be that'd be. I would have fun with that. That would be minutes of good fun. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you for you, Lauren, minutes of good fun. <laughs> However, I'm a simple human being, <laughs> and could easily stretch that into a full afternoon of activities. <laughs> so, oh, and, and part part of the thing here is that uh, these hairs aren't the only things that that geckos have going for them in terms of sticking capacity. Um, their their wall climbing ability also involves the curved shape of their toes um, and the way that their feet and toes spread out when they make contact with the surface and their toes self-cleaning abilities. Self-cleaning. Now, this is 
kind of going back to what we had to, you know, the discussion about the, the little projections and the, the moth eye projections that when we made the synthetic versions, we had to come up with some sort of self-cleaning process in order to make the solar panels not get all clogged up and opaque. So what's going on here? Well, our, our friendly neighborhood creepy crawly researchers at the University of Akron, and I do want to mention, you you pronounced it in the video, Akron. Yeah. And no, I that was a thing that happened. To be fair. He was talking about the planet. To be fair. Akron. That only happened in one take. <laughs> and Dan chose that take. I was, I was, I was, I was born in, in Akron. So I, I, I have, so I just, I needed to point it out. I understand. I, winced, I have Ohio State pride. I watched that video recently, as in just before we went into this podcast, and I winced when I realized that was the take he went with. At any rate, um, <sighs> uh, we, we've, we've mentioned these researchers a couple times recently, I think, and, and they published some research about, um, Gecko's footprints that has helped helped us kind of solve this puzzle a little bit further. It turns out the gecko footprints contain residue of these thin oils called phospholipids, um, which we're pretty sure geckos excrete to keep all those little nano hairs clean. Um, and, and it might also help them quickly adhere to and release from surfaces. Right. So that, that would make sense. You would want to keep the hairs clear of any debris because otherwise that would, it, it would inhibit your, your, that ability. Rolls. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to adhere to the wall anymore. Uh, and also, yeah, the oil making it easier to, uh, to release and then put your foot down and then release again in order to continue motion. Uh, Again, it makes sense. Obviously, these are things that are under continuing study. So it, it's a, uh, it seems to be a solid hypothesis. We'll see if it, it after we're able to study it further, if it holds true. Yeah. And, and once once we get that figured out, it might help some of these other physical process uh researchers to to perfect the designs that they're making, like like in, in addition to that silicone tape. Um, some other researchers are working with carbon nanotubes to reproduce the physical structures of these little hairs. Man, carbon nanotubes, what can't they do? <laughs> the, the, they are magic. They are. They are. Well, not really, but they seem like it. <laughs> no, really, magic. Thanks, Joe. They're made by wizards. <laughs> um, the, the, the most success that these researchers have seen so far has been with uh, vertically aligned, single-walled carbon nanotubes in case you were curious, and mm. I know you were. Of course. Um, which could could hypothetically have a greater maximum sticking power than the original gecko feet themselves. That's pretty awesome. I, I, I have heard of uh, people determined to make kind of a wall climbing suit using essentially this approach, using carbon nanotubes as the gripping power for that kind of suit. So essentially this is a a different sort of Spidey suit. We've talked about other ones, like we talked about the Spidey suit that gives you an alert if there's an oncoming mm, object. Uh-huh. Uh, but this, in this case, it would it would be a totally different type of Spidey suit that would allow you to climb walls. I guess you could incorporate both so that yeah. you could finally get a Spider-Man outfit going. Well, you still wouldn't have the webs. No, but stay tuned for Dickie fans because we might actually address some of that in a future podcast. You know, but there are a lot of other ways that biomimicry can come into the way we create new pieces of technology, and especially in robotics. That's a huge one. And we've talked about that in the past, too. Um, Yeah. One thing I'd like to say about robotics is uh, that you can look to biomimicry or biomimetics not just to inspire 
the the physical designs of like okay so we can make something like gecko feed the materials can, right yeah not just the materials not just the static designs but you can use biomimetics to program behavior that's true uh, and what I had in mind was the Boston Dynamics robots that we've talked about right before. oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah like uh, like big dog yeah big dog or the the wild cat you know yeah. these uh, these running four-legged robots, or they also have bipedal robots, yes. walking two-legged robots. It, it's interesting that when you look at robots, most of them, if they're going to be moving around, they have tracks or they have wheels. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah because, legs are tough. Yeah, that makes sense. It, wheels are very energy efficient. They're, you know, they're great. They're easy to program. But, but they're legs, not good for everything. Right. We have legs for a reason. We can do all kinds of stuff that most robots can't do. We can climb trees. We can scrabble over weird shaped rocks. We can we can use them to help propel us for swimming. Yeah, there are a I lot mean, of different. They're, they're ways very of very versatile in yeah. a way that wheels are not not at all. And so it's not just the fact that we're making robots that have legs that's biomimetic, but it's also the ways that we program legs. I mean. When you think about this, say you're you're programming a robot to move around. Well, if it just has wheels, that's pretty simple. You can say roll this way to go forward, roll this way to go back, you know, turn with this differential and in, in the different wheels to go one way or the other. Right. Uh, but if you've got legs, yeah, depending wow, upon how many do, you do? It means you have to take into account the freedom of movement. How many yeah. how many points of freedom of movement do those legs have? Mm-hmm. What is the weight of the robot? What's the momentum the robot's going to be how experiencing? To balance the weight on each of the four legs as they're moving, right? Yeah, or uh, however many legs. Because if you have four legs on a robot, I mean, it's not obvious at what time each leg should move, right? Yeah, know? so there's a lot of biomimicry that goes on in the robotics field. A lot of study of how animals move, and then attempting to engineer that so that a robot can take advantage of this particular approach. I mean, we've seen it in nature how uh, animals are able to maneuver uh, adeptly through an environment, and if we're able to copy that, then that's a lot easier than just trying to innovate. You know, from from nothing. Yeah, one of my favorite biomimetic designs that I've seen in robot locomotion is something we've talked about on this mm-hmm. podcast before. It's the way the Boston Dynamics big dog robot stumbles. Yeah, if it you, stumbles yeah. to catch itself when it's been knocked off balance. Right. If it if it were to step, say, on uh, an unsteady rock and the rock gave way, it would be able to stumble and catch itself to, or to shift its weight around. Right. Yeah, in in a way that looks really unnervingly realistic. Right. Yeah. Or 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 if someone who perhaps when you're watching a video appears to be an uncaring sociopath <laughs> kicks the the dog, it can catch itself. I realize I'm still upset by that. This this human yeah. being is probably someone who has a rich emotional life and, and would gen- never kick a real would dog. never kick a real animal. But it's just that it's and that- would probably never kick the robot unless for strict testing purposes. Right. It's, it's it was just one of those reactions where you immediately think you are a bad person. <laughs> They're not a bad person. It's just that's the reaction I had immediately upon watching the video of someone kicking this dog, which not dog, but this robot, robot which then would catch itself. Um I had another one which I had to 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 include, which was the Velosa Roach. Oh yeah, I've read about this one. This was uh, one of those robots that, as soon as you read about, you think science. There are some things you can do, and some things you should do, and those two things do not always coincide. Why have you created a robotic cockroach? It's the classic Ian Malcolm question. You know, <laughs> your scientists were so concerned with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. <laughs> Man, 
Thanks, we're, Ian Malcolm. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a point where we're just going to do an entire podcast doing our own impressions of various celebrities, <laughs> and and we get as to, scientists. I mean, in obviously, kind of silly Nick Cage is going to be one of the three. I mean, that's going to have to happen. Oh, you guys have already been treated to Noel's excellent Nicholas Cage, right? Uh, I, I, if I, not, go back and listen to our podcast about bees. I'm going to go ahead and the call uh, Jay Moore doing an impression of. Christopher Walken, because uh, my impression of Christopher Walken is so bad, I have to remove it at least by one impressionist. Uh At any rate, so the Velociroach getting back on track is a robot that that mimics the movement and uh, and and body size of a cockroach. They took the cockroach as sort of the the inspiration for the design of the robot, and for its size, it's one of the fastest robots for its size. You know, you have to take the scale into consideration. Uh, Also. Uh, you can just see it in lots of different other examples in robotics. These are just a couple of the, the ones that we thought would be fun to talk about, but it's throughout the entire industry. Beyond that, we're looking at biomimicry for things not just technology related, but sort of on a, a civil engineering and social engineering level. Uh, social insects have become an area of study for that reason, because Social insects, if you were to look at an individual insect that has uh, this kind of social structure, so something like an ant or a bee, now that particular uh, example, that particular individual insect, its behaviors are pretty simple. Yeah, it's not really what we would call smart. Yeah, it's not at all smart. It's it's pretty dumb in the big in the big grand scheme of things. However, the collection of these insects can behave in very complex and seemingly intelligent ways and respond to dynamic changes in its environment in a very impressive approach. And that kind of thing fascinates scientists and engineers and could potentially let us answer some questions that could end up benefiting humans down the line. I would argue that that bees are probably more smart than ants, but maybe only because I know bees better. Right. Maybe maybe we should do a future of ants podcast. Yeah, yeah. 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 We'll wait okay. till he's out of town. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed we do insect podcasts while I'm gone. gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that's fair. Just don't just don't do the same with arachnids. Okay. Make that promise for me. We promised. No problem. Right. Okay. Good. It's an easy promise to make because uh, we already did that one. But anyway, uh, so let's talk about beetles. Beatles. Yeah. Let, let's do talk about Beatles. Not, not the not, band. Hey, hey, we're the Beatles. Not the band. People that... say we beetle around. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you took a band that itself was a essentially a a, a weak copy of another band, <laughs> but they're a biomimetic band. <laughs> you know what? That's fair. I am going to allow it. Um, all right. No, I'm talking about Beatles and irrigation. Not irrigating your beetle. So B E E T L E. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Not beetle, but beetle. So in this case, I'm talking about an engineer who looked at the Namib beetle and was inspired to create a way of extracting water from the air. See, this particular beetle, it tends to live in very arid conditions. And one of the things it'll, it does is that it'll come out onto the surface of whatever its environment is in the early morning uh, and will... Uh, allow it allows water to collect on its shell. It condenses upon its shell, and then it uses that water to help survive. Huh. So, okay. the the this engineer looked at that and said, "Huh, is there something I could do that kind of mimics this sort of behavior?" And he came up with a system 
that had a self-powered pump and a series of tubes, not unlike the Internet. No, wait, I'm sorry. That's not really a series of tubes. No, there really was a series of tubes underground that pumped cool air to this uh, to this above ground portion of the, the device of the device. Yeah, it's called the airdrop. So the above ground portion of the airdrop gets cooled by this air that's flowing through these underground pipes. And that that cooling means that water will condense on the airdrop and then flow down into a collection area. Huh. And specifically, this would be used to collect water to uh, to then give over to a garden. Um, it's not a lot of water. You would not imagine it to be a lot of water. This is for arid locations where you're pulling tiny amounts of moisture out of the air, but it can be enough to grow certain types of plants. So it's a really interesting uh, approach. And it also uh, a one, it won an award. I think he got something like $10,000 to continue to develop the idea. And there are a lot of countries that are particularly interested in Looking at this approach, seeing if it's scalable, seeing if it's uh, if it's a practical approach. So it's really interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the other things that we wanted to talk about was a suggestion from um, from from one of our YouTube viewers on the video that you, Jonathan, did about biomimetics. Um, and this was user Magic of Dark. Right. <laughs> so so thank you, sir or madam, for for writing in. So Magic of Dark. Here here is the. The, the scenario I'm going to paint for you. I'm not going to say immediately what it was you requested. It'll become apparent. But way back in 1941, Georges de Mestral went for a walk. Now, this guy's a Swiss engineer. Mm-hmm. All right. He's, he's going out there. He's walking. He's looking for new and exciting ways to make hot chocolate. Yeah. You know, the way Swiss engineers do. <laughs> and eventually gets back after the end of his walk and starts to do what any self-respecting walking naturalist slash engineer would do, which is start to pick the burrs that have accumulated on clothing and his dog out of the the various fabrics and hairs. If you have a longer-haired dog, picking burrs off the dog is a sad and and very labor-intensive process. Yes, it's much easier just to take scissors to the dog. Aww. What the dog doesn't know? My dog, my dog is a hairy dog, and he he gets burrs all in his face. Oh, yeah, it's I, so sad. I have had to deal with this, but my dog tends to get them stuck in his paws. So oh. it's also yeah. There's there's a lot of, lot of sadness, but no, this is not a sad story, guys. This is a story about how the Swiss engineer looked at these burrs and how they had hooked into his clothing, and said, "Wait, is there a way that I could?" engineer a fabric that could do the same thing and act as a fastener. Because here I'm seeing a natural substance that's doing this. Could we do this so that it's on purpose? And so he created a pair of fabrics that complemented one another. One of those fabrics had lots of tiny hooks in it. The other fabric had lots of tiny hoops in it so that the hooks and the hoops would interlock when you put them together. And if you pulled them apart, they could snap loose and thus Velcro was born. Ah. Now, Velcro is named after a combination of the words velvet and crochet. If you crochet, you use a little hook. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So he wouldn't patent it until 1955. Of course, back in 1941, there was a little thing called World War II that was going on. So that was keeping people busy, keeping yeah. people really busy. And the original Velcro was made from cotton. Now, eventually, Mestral would switch over to nylon because cotton would wear out after you used it for a while. And nylon was a little more resilient. And it ended up getting an enormous PR boost during the 1960s because that's when the space race was in full effect. And one of the problems that NASA had was, 
hey, you know, if we go out to space, we're in free fall. So we're in this environment where there's weightlessness or or very, you know, microgravity is in, in, a, in play. So how do we keep the stuff what we bring someplace where it's not going to get in the way? And they came up with, hey, why don't we use this Velcro stuff? It's it's easier than tying, especially if you're wearing a spacesuit. You know, you don't have the manual dexterity to mm-hmm. necessarily tie something to something else. And it ended up being uh, kind of a uh, a miracle uh, technology for use during the space race. It was not invented specifically for that. That often ends up being one of those facts you'll hear. Things like, you know, 10 technologies NASA invented. It was invented before the space race, but it was incredibly useful during the space race. And as a result of that, it ended up get, becoming well-known, so much so that the term Velcro is now used for any sort of materials where it has this hook and, and loop system. Yeah. Not not all of those are technically from the company Velcro. It's proprietary, yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but it's sort of it's like, like Frisbee or Xerox or mm-hmm. Kleenex or Band-Aids, you know, the sort of thing where one example, the 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 primary example becomes the name for all of the product. It's sort of some jello, same sort of thing. So anyway, that's the story. It's yeah. pretty cool. It was a big success. And of course, we all know now that it went on to forever replace all shoelaces. <laughs> I did have Velcro sneakers when was I was a kid. In the 80s, early 90s. Yeah. 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 I also had hypercolor T-shirts, but that's not biomimicry. That's just awesome. I, I think that in fashion, all buttons, laces, and buckles of all kinds should be replaced by Velcro. I really dislike Velcro on my clothing. <laughs> I, I I hate the noise. I can't stand the noise. I also think all pants should have elastic ankles. I don't like you anymore. <laughs> I have so many jokes, but none of them are appropriate, so I'm going to move on. Uh, the last thing I was really going to look at and by look at, I mean just talk about because you can't really look at it, is nanotechnology. Uh, again, we you have talked, to have a really good microscope. Yeah, yeah, and even then, if you're talking about an optical microscope, you can't really look at it because if you're at a small enough scale, you're actually so small that light itself is not going to pick you up. So, um, so anyway, nanotechnology has become uh, a growing industry in in the world of science and tech, and a lot of that is all about biomimicry because... As it turns out, building stuff on the nanoscale is really hard. Like I mentioned, we have quantum effects that can come into play there. And and it is difficult even for us to be able to to see, let alone manipulate things down at that scale. Well, when we've talked about uh, molecular assemblers on this show before, you know, that's this idea that uh, that you'd have this kind of almost magic machine that could on the nanoscale build tiny, tiny little components and, you know, make food or make pieces for your starship it would just build everything molecule by molecule well if that's ever possible in real life it seems like it's a long way away i mean that's just it's so hard to imagine making something like that but your body has stuff in it right now that pretty much does that you are doing that as we speak yeah the ribosomes in your cells are basically molecular assemblers right they're assembling molecules piece at a time. And then you have things like viruses, which one of those one of those things that's really difficult to classify. I mean, you still have those those classic arguments of does a virus count as life or not because it exhibits many of the traits of life, but not necessarily all of them, and it is a incredibly simple structure. 
But the simple structure, which is essentially you've got a protein shell mm-hmm. and then you've got the, the virus that's inside the shell and the protein shell will dock with certain types of cells, which then allows the virus to invade the cell and essentially take over the cell's production facilities to make more viruses, which then can spread out and do the same to other cells. Well, there could be some actual practical uses of this in our world that are not involved with making someone sick. It could be making someone better. And the idea is to use something like a virus shell that would have the right proteins on it to dock with certain types of cells, specifically cancer cells. Mm -hmm. And then you scoop out whatever the viral material would have been inside this virus shell. And inside you put chemotherapy drugs. So you can deliver chemotherapy drugs to specific cells as opposed to a region. And in theory, you would be able to deliver an effective medicine while limiting the side effects as much as is possible. Uh, Right. Because one of the problems with a widespread chemotherapy is that it's going to make you very sick because because it's getting into your your the poisons are are getting into your other tissues. And that's bad times for you. Yeah, it's it's if you can target specifically the cancer cells, then. Yeah, you really minimize that that uh, area effect that you get otherwise. So it's a really promising area of research. It's obviously incredibly complex. It's not, you know, the, the idea is simple. The execution is much more difficult. But it's something that a lot of people are looking into. And I, I got a chance a few years ago to interview a, uh, a nanotechnology expert at Emory. And he was talking about how using viruses was one of the most promising approaches because why invent something that needs to do a specific task if there's already an example of it out in nature, which is exactly what we've been talking about this whole podcast. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, it's the, the nanotechnology world is relatively new to us and strange and unusual, but in nature, this has been part of the, the way things work for billions of years. So we should look to examples because that will be at least a first step into that world. And, you know, we'll probably create new approaches that are built on those first steps that go beyond what nature does. But it's a good starting point. So, yeah, pretty cool stuff. And there are probably thousands of other examples of biomimicry that we could talk about. Tens of thousands. Yeah. (laughs) So billions of thousands. All right. Well, let's not go overboard. So but if there if we happen to have accidentally skipped over one that you, dear listener, hold as the most important example of biomimicry and you think, why didn't you talk about this? Let us know, because we'd love to be able to cover that perhaps in a future episode. Um, Little word, though, if it's about spiders you can hold off. Yeah, hold hold back that, yeah, that message. Just, and then if we didn't talk about spiders the way you wanted us to, then you can let us know. But really, if there are other examples that you think, no, this is super cool and people need to know about it, let us know. And the best way to get in contact with us is through Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. All three places you can find us with the handle FWThinking. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You deserve to treat yourself. So turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended silver unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 